started. Uh, last week, we uh, did chapter 2A of the, called The Kingdom of God Defined of the 15-part series we're doing, 15-chapter series we're doing called The Kingdom of God. Many of the chapters will be multiple weeks, but I'm going to try to keep it as brief as possible and get this well under a year. Uh, some of you may realize that we started this series at the beginning of the year, got sidetracked because uh, we went into a season of fasting, and I taught on fasting for a couple weeks, and then uh, we decided to teach chapter two out of the uh, seminar we did at the ARC uh, spring retreat. And so we picked up again the Kingdom of God series, and I decided not to repeat chapter one. Chapter one was called the, the Essential Importance of the Kingdom of God, and we basically made the point in chapter one that the Kingdom of God is the central theme of the whole Bible. We tend to read the Bible today for a number of reasons that I won't go into right now, but have gone into elsewhere in our teachings. We tend to read the Bible as a series of disjointed uh, verses. But the, the Bible, although it was written through the agency of 40 human beings on three continents over 2,000 years, was written by one author. It is the ininfallible, inerrant word of one triune God. And therefore, uh, we should not expect less than we would expect of human authors. We would not read a, a novel and think that the, the novel is about uh, 16,000 different unrelated themes. We would be looking for the one major point the author is trying to make. And the kingdom of God provides that central theme. The whole Bible is about the unveiling of God's kingdom and the king of his kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's a very big clue. That clue is... Uh, is uh, First of all, that the kingdom of God is something to do with the earth. Uh, I surveyed a lot of people over the years as to what do you think would be meant by, by Matthew's use of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or the rest of the Bible's use of the, use of the phrase, the kingdom of God. And most people say, I don't know. Uh, if you press them a little further, they'll say it's, it has something to do with the afterlife or the next world. But the kingdom of God, Jesus announces as uh, John the Baptist announces, the apostles announce, is here now in your midst. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And uh, <clears throat> indeed, it's the central theme of the whole Bible. And it's something that God is very much wanting to work into us and through us into the whole earth. So I'm glad to have my pastor, Ray Nethery, here today. Welcome, Ray. And uh because I actually had two uh, very life-changing events in the spring of 1975 when I was a one-year-old Christian. One, I was baptized in the pond at, uh, outside of Mansfield Church that Ray had founded and pastored for many years. And uh, I got to know Ray late 74, but the, I, primarily I think the first time I ever got to talk to him was the spring of 75. And uh, also in the spring of 75, I heard a man named Paul Petrie speak uh, a message called the kingdom of God 
that after 40 years of being a Christian, I still consider in a league by itself the far most important Christian message I've ever heard. Believe me, I listen to a lot of messages and read a lot of books. And um, it really uh, helped my thinking uh, about the whole Bible. I had read, I was only about one year old in the Lord, but I was hungry for the Lord because of the uh, thought patterns of the people influencing me. I had only read the New Test, or the Old Testament about twice by that time, and uh, I had read the New Testament through, oh, 15 or 20 times by that time. And I had read the book of Acts probably about 50 times by the time I was a year old in the Lord. It was, it, in fact, I read the book of Acts 40 times in the first four months I was a Christian. And uh, I just began to say, Lord, why is the Christianity of the Bible so different from the Christianity of our culture? And I began to study historically, have other people asked that same question? And how have they answered it? And uh, almost, um, with very few exceptions, many, many, many people in, in church history have asked that question and then locked on to one aspect of the full counsel of God or one aspect of what we call the three delivery systems of grace and said, that's the answer. We need this one thing restored. So uh, Charles Parham was a Methodist minister in Topeka, Kansas. In the year 1900, he had started a Bible school. Uh, the state of things were so, uh, prejudice was so different back in those days that there was a young man named William Seymour who was attending his Bible school, but because he was African-American, he had to sit in the hallway. He wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with the white students. Uh, thing, thankfully, things have changed in that respect. Um, but uh, Charles Parham asked the entire Bible college to do an independent study of what from the book of Acts the church was missing today that made our Christianity so different than the Christianity you read about in the Bible. And he asked them not to compare notes with each other and not to, uh, in, in other words, to study independently. And every one of them came back and said, this experience called being baptized with or filled with the Holy Spirit is what we're missing. And that led to the, them beginning to seek that experience. And, and out of that be, uh, was birthed the Pentecostal movement. Of course, the young black man sitting in the hallway was a guy named William Seymour, who became God's instrument six years later in Los Angeles to birth what was called the Azusa Street Revival, which birthed the Pentecostal movement into the whole world. But uh, they tended to look at one part of the counsel of God that needs restored as being the whole answer. I would happen to be a part of a movement that was in many ways a good movement in the early 70s that said, well, what we really need to do is get back to personal discipling, accountability, small groups, and these kind of community and these kind of concepts which is a very, very important thing that needs to be restored. What, how we do church today, the see you on Sunday mentality, and 90% of things that happen in the church happen on the church campus at the church's official meetings and very little fellowship from house to house and, and uh, you know, personal you know, interaction. All of that definitely needs to be restored. But... Uh, the answer really is that, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead and guide you into all the truth. God really wants to, and that word all seems, uh, it seems almost arrogant to think you could 
even think about, like, how do we restore all the truth? I submit to you that we can at least make some progress toward it if we first think in terms of models, patterns, and categories. So we'll look at that as we go on. So anyway, uh, 1975, I met Ray Nethery, and I also began to think about the kingdom of God. And this series is uh, going to be the, uh, the uh, 39 years uh, results of, of my studying about the kingdom of God. I hope to unload on you in the next year or so. Um, last week, we began to, uh, we started in on this outline. Does everybody have an outline uh, here? You'll need to follow this if you're going to follow me today. Everyone has one? Last week, we started into this, and I finished the first page. We're going to be flipping over to page two. I'm not going to review much for time, except I decided I'll review point five. And so, uh, and that'll have to suffice for our review. The, uh, we have, you can sign up for a free CD in the back, or you can uh, listen to these on our website. They're put on every week. They're put on usually by Sunday night by Emily on our uh, on, a, in, on a podcast format. So um, point five says this about, you know, what on earth, what in God's earth is the kingdom of heaven? That is defining the kingdom of God. God's predestined purpose has always been and remains. That's very important. You'll see this in Genesis 1. The Bible reveals that uh, where were we? God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests. Did you know your priest this morning? Of the Most High God? Born of and filled with and extending the manifest presence of his spirit. In other words, you're a priest today of God if you're born of his spirit, if you're born again of the spirit of God, if you're filled with his spirit. And his goal is that in your priesthood, you would extend the manifest presence of his spirit. Some people say that we are to mediate the presence of God into the earth. That's a, a Ray Nethery phrase. We are to me mediate the presence of God into the earth. And um, together... Uh, this kingdom of priests is to be God's temple, built according to his pattern and overflowing with his glory in demonstrable ways. Now, Jesus makes it clear in John 3, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. You cannot see the spirit of God with your five physical senses. You can discern the spirit of God with your spirit. However, you can see the effects of the spirit of God with your observable behavior. One of the things you get into with uh, it, that you, you need to do is it, Hebrews 5 says that solid food is for the mature whose senses have been trained to discern good and evil. And... Um, those senses aren't just the, the sense you have of the Holy Spirit. Through your physical senses, through people's character, through uh, whether the things they're saying are scriptural, through the, whether they glorify Jesus Christ, uh, whether they're full of good fruit and the gentleness of wisdom, uh, dependability, faithfulness, good work ethic, uh, humility, teachableness, you can discern whether they're really the Spirit of God or not by the outward effect of them. 
Now, um, when we look at this word pattern, I hope you understand that by now that uh, there are patterns in the Bible. They start in Genesis 1. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. Um, God establishes a pattern with uh, the idea of light, that light overpowers darkness. God says in the midst of, of the whole universe, he says, let there be light, and light begins to be created and to expand, and it, that is still going, because he didn't say let there be so much light. He just said let there be light. It's amazing that modern scientists have finally discovered that the universe, the stars and the light of the universe is still unfolding. They should have known it all along because it was right there in Genesis 1, even though they didn't have the instruments to measure such things until modern times. So, um, but light overcoming darkness is the inevitable direction of the universe. Light overpowers and destroys darkness. A little light dispels a lot of darkness. And that's what John, John says in the Gospel of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was toward God, and the Word was God, and so forth. All things came into being through him. In him was the light, and the, the light overcame the darkness. The darkness could not comprehend it, or that is, overpower it. So um, light overcomes darkness. You know, there are patterns all through the universe. Jesus himself is our pattern. And the, one of the primary themes of Scripture is, is the pattern that God wants to take the perfect tabernacle, temple, sanctuary of his presence, which exists forever and ever and ever in heaven, and bring it to the earth. And he brought it to the earth in the Garden of Eden. And he put... Uh, a, a priest in charge of it named Adam. And as we'll study in this series, Adam fell from his calling, but his calling was to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, and to use the four rivers that came out of the garden to export the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the ways of God into all the earth. And God wasn't surprised when Adam fell and said, oh my gosh, I don't have a plan B. God is working all things together according to the eternal predestined counsel of his will. And his will is that the earth will be filled with the glory of God, as, with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That comes primarily as God infuses his temple and, the, you know, again, the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the temple Solomon's temple was a, a foreshadowing of the temple. Even Ezekiel's, which was never built, uh, Ezra's rebuilt temple, the temple of Herod in Jesus' day, all of these were foreshadowings of the true temple, which Paul reveals to us, uh, a mystery. A mystery is something that should have been obvious all along, but can only be revealed as the, as the Holy Spirit takes the veil off of the mystery through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we discovered all along God intended his people to be his temple. The church. So, so yep. So, um, 
I, I just kind of wanted to, to revisit that because we live in a time where our Christianity is so often devoid of manifestations of the Spirit of God. But a, 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 a temple that doesn't have the active glory of God so that people are coming under conviction of sin, people are lives are being changed, people are being reborn, people are being converted, people are being healed, people are being delivered from demons, people are prophesying, people, uh, God is doing demonstrable manifestations of his spirit, that kind of temple does not exist in the Bible. And that kind of temple neutralizes Christianity into a religiosity that becomes very impractical. And so I, I definitely want, wanted to just revisit point five a little bit today, and I, I don't feel like I really revert, release that all. I'll probably later in the, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the three agents of the kingdom or something like that, uh, chapter eight, I'll probably try to get into that more. But the, the restoration of the, of the manifest works of the Holy Spirit as seen in the ministries of Moses, Elijah, the prophets, Jesus, uh, of course, it's heightened as, as the new covenant comes in Jesus and, and the apostles, and in many other places throughout church history. Read the book, again, Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which is a well-documented source of tens of thousands of God's healings and miracles throughout centuries of the church. Uh, the restoration of those things is absolutely essential if we're in, because a body without a spirit is dead. My first Christian message uh, was given two hours after I stood over the body of my little brother whose spirit had gone to be with Jesus. And I spoke at his, his, his uh, viewing or wake that night. And the first thing you notice when you're, when you're standing over the body of a deceased person is when the spirit is gone, the body is still there. You know, most churches uh, could keep going with their programs and the bulletin and get the, uh, have the meetings and the, this committee and that committee and the Tuesday night Bible study and the Thursday morning women's group. And most, most churches could continue for years without any demonstrable manifestation of the Spirit of God. I don't want to live there. I don't want to be a part of that. And it, therefore, it's very important that we, that we humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, when it looks like the ministry of Jesus, when it looks like the book of Acts, then we can start saying, hopefully someday we could say we're not sub-biblical Christians. Until then, Grace Christian Fellowship is a sub-biblical Christian church trying to become more biblical, trying to be more what God intends for us to be and putting his manifest glory in our midst in, with signs and wonders is definitely a part of this, uh, this whole kingdom of God message. All right, so let's get into today's stuff. Uh, definition number nine on the back side. No person, that would be you and me, can have any ultimate fulfillment, purpose, or joy without the illumination of knowing and experiencing the king. That is the living word, Jesus Christ, who is made manifest through the written word and by aligning one's life, character, and purpose with King Jesus' life, 
character and kingdom purposes. In other words, uh, if you keep doing it your way, God loves you so much that he's going to allow you to experience frustration, foolishness, uh, death, spiritually and sometimes otherwise. Uh, he, God loves you so much that he's not going to bless your way. And there comes times when you basically need to say, God, you be the Lord. I'm going to quit driving. You drive. And, and he wants to drive by his word, by his spirit, and depending on your level of spiritual maturity, by the leadership of his church. There's times when you need someone to say, you know what, this is what God is doing in your life. And uh, so, um, again, no person can have any ultimate fulfillment any real purpose, any real joy without the illumination of knowing and experiencing the king. That is, who, what is the king? Who, how do you know that you're doing that? That is, you know, you experience the king through the, the that is, he's the living word of God, uh, and he's made manifest through the written word. And as you align your life, your character and your purpose to his life, character and kingdom purposes, you'll begin to experience life. That's what Jesus says in John 10, 10. He says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Here's a clue about whether you've been doing things God's way or, or your way. Look at some of the great figures of the Bible and say, is my life abundant as theirs? Look at some of the gr greatest Christians you know and say, is my life as abundant as theirs? The Bible tells you to do that. Hebrews 13, 7 says, consider those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their faith, of, uh, outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Because their faith is an your faith is always an expression, is expressed through your way of life. So think about those who led you. I honestly tell you, one of the keys to, to how I walk with the Lord is I keep, I keep people like Ray Nethery uh, many others that discipled me in Bowling Green, and uh, I keep, you know, guys who taught me in the 70s and so forth, and now, you know, as time's gone on, more and more figures from church history. But I look at my life as owed to them. I really do. I pray that God would work that into me all the time. You know, we stand on the the backs of and the necks of shoulders or of giants, the shoulders of giants. It's easy for me to say. I'm stumbling over my words a lot today. I shouldn't stay up so late out with those wild people, John and Emily and Ray, till one o'clock in the morning last night. Jeez. Um, have mercy on us. So I'm stumbling a lot over my words, and I apologize. But um, this goes on to say, all the reasons for living are futile and frustrating. They miss the mark of God's creative purposes in and through his people and produce destruction and death. One of the things I love is in uh, 2 Timothy, um, or is it 1 Timothy? I'm forgetting the 3.12 where Paul tells Timothy, but you, Timothy, have known my faith, my doctrine, my teaching. But then he goes, my purpose. Wow, he, he's saying, Timothy, 
You've known, understood, and followed my motivation? How many of us know, even know anyone that well? But what, this is, what I'm saying by this is, uh, God, you, if your motivation is less than what God wants it to be, it's subject to futility, frustration, and death. God wants to change your motivations. That you would uh, uh, cry out to God that he would change you to honestly live for the glory of God and the furtherment of his name. The more he works that in you, the more you'll become who you were always created to be. The more you don't care if you ever get any accolades or if you ever make a name for yourself or if you ever get any notice, the more you care about his glory, the more free you'll be. Now, this point nine, we're talking about conversion and uh you know, I, I pray a lot and think a lot. In the last 10 years, I've really focused a lot on what is the gospel and what is true conversion versus false conversion. This morning, I, I just thought I would add to this that one of the things that I think characterizes the most people who can see versus people who are blind is simply this. Uh, John, John uh, did a message out of John 9 and uh, out of John 2 as well about bl- those who are blind versus those who can see. And remember... Jesus says to the Pharisees, because you think you can see, therefore your sin remains. There, that is, you're still blind. And, you know, the Bible has this blind seeing theme all through. You know, when Paul, when Paul encounters Jesus, uh, he's totally blind, thinking he totally thinks he can see. He's totally self-righteous and going to correct others and get them straightened out and so forth. He's totally blind. King Jesus knocks him off his donkey and onto his uh, derriere. And, uh, and he says, who are you, Lord? And when Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, for the first time he can see, but he becomes blind for the next three days. And up till then, he actually thought, totally thought he could see when he was, in fact, totally blind. You know, of course, the, God is always doing these things as dramatic illustrations of the importance of his purposes. And, uh, you know, three days later, Ananias comes along, a humble servant of the Lord, and, and, he, and Paul is healed, and then he once and for all can, can really see, uh, both uh, spiritually and physically. But it, it gets down to this. Um, when we think, when we see the sins of others more easily than we see the sins in ourselves, we're blind. The essence of seeing is is to come under the conviction of sin so that we see the depth of our sin. And if there's anything that I think is missing in the church today, it's the depth of conviction of sin. Because it's only through seeing your utter depravity, through understanding that you were dead, and dead men cannot even help themselves, nor hear When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he said, Lazarus, come forth. God, the first miracle is that God allowed Lazarus to hear that because he couldn't have heard it. The first miracle in salvation is God. Jesus said, there's a time that'll come when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear will live. 
You couldn't have even, you weren't looking for God. You were running from God. He came looking for you. I wish I could do more with this, but I'll run out of all my time if I do. do. But, you know, cry out, there's this thing in us that so easily, I kind of was reminded of this, I was actually reading on Facebook, and unfortunately I have some, liberal friends and relatives that I grew up with that uh, put all kinds of nonsense about how wonderful the more socialism and more government control is and stuff like that. And I, and I, you know, I really began to look at certain guys that I really know well, and I thought, you know, their whole life is bound by the fact that they see the sin in society and they see the sin in everyone else, but they really look at themselves as basically good. And when you are 10 times more broken about your sin than about those who sinned against you, then your eyes are starting to be open. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? Then the work of grace is starting. You, you cannot see your need for the grace of God until God takes a spiritually dead deaf, dumb, blind, and stupid person and begins to help you see the depth of your need. You need rescued. And you can't help in the rescue except to cry out when he opens your eyes to see you need rescued. Number 10. I wish I could do more with that. Number 10. The whole Bible contains a progressive revelation of the mystery of the kingdom of God as explained clearly by Jesus, Peter, Paul, and others. The mysteries of Christ and his kingdom are, are presented clearly, plainly, and pervasively throughout every chapter of Scripture, yet in such a way that no one fully grasped their meaning or anticipated their fulfillment because God has ordained that a veil lies over the minds of the seekers until it is lifted by the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ who was obviously always the point. Now, as you read in Peter's epistles, he talks about how the prophets of old sought to understand what the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as they prophesied and so forth. And uh, as you look at things from Genesis 1 on, many things about the kingdom of God were always there. They were always obvious, but you can't really see them until you see them through the light of Christ. Um, God has ordained that a veil lies over the mind of the seeker till it is lifted by the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ, who was obviously always the point. The mystery of the kingdom is Christ, and Christ in us manifesting and filling the whole earth with his glory. Thus we labor until Christ is formed in every man, family, and church community. Number 11. The kingdom of God is the jurisdiction of God or the reign of God. And the people of God, that's us, are the agent of the kingdom. We're going to look at, in chapter 8, three agents of the kingdom. The people of God are therefore supposed to be a nation within the nations. That is, a city within the cities. Uh, We're supposed to be a city set on a hill. All sorts of metaphors like that. Uh, A nation within the nations, a city within the cities, was separate a unique priest, separate and unique government, separate and unique culture, separate and unique laws, language, economics, taxes, race, 
leadership models, philosophy of education, business purposes, ethics, politics, etc. We are supposed to be the city set on a hill. We're supposed to be the lampstand. Now, I once uh, encountered a good friend of mine named Lou Callagher. Uh, teaches a, a course at a Christian college and another one, the same course at a Christian high school on Christian worldview. And um, the high school kind of changed uh, philosophies of who was running the school to the modern sort of evangelical way of looking at things. And the guy called Lou into his office and he said, you know, I'm not going to have your class next year. And Lou said, oh, that's interesting. Why? He goes, well, he goes, I'm just interested in saving souls. I'm not interested in changing the culture. And there, in a nutshell, is the whole denial of the kingdom of God. We are supposed to be a separate culture that manifests a different culture to the world around us. In every aspect of culture, from the way we relate to our parents to the way we raise our children, to the way we do our business. You know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a sign of the things of our time that the idea of a Christian business doesn't carry much respect. I've actually had Christian, I've actually, I've known quite a few businessmen who said, I don't like to hire Christians. They're always the worst workers. That should never be the case. Um, you know, the racial issue, is, which is one of my pet peeves, um, they call Sunday morning the most segregated hour in America. Uh, there are government federal laws that require blacks and whites to work together in every venue, go to school together, post office, uh, certain numbers have to be hired to, to and so forth, called affirmative action and all this kind of thing. But when black people and white people have the choice, they generally don't go to the same church on Sunday mornings. And, and both the blacks and the whites prefer it that way. That is exactly the opposite of what the early church accomplished with the Jew and Gentile prejudice that was basically similar to, to the black-white prejudice of our day. I submit to you that Jesus said... By this, all men will know that they're truly my disciples if they have love for one another. Now, I've taught you many times how to read the reverse negative. That's called the, the key to reading comprehension is to read the re reverse negative. So Jesus is saying, by this will all men know that they're my disciples if they have love for one another. And so it, that also says, by this all men will know that they're not my disciples when they don't have love for one another. And I submit to you that the world around us will never take our Christianity serious as long as we continue to have primarily homogeneous churches where everyone's the same age, the same color, the same educational level, and the same socioeconomic status. You know, we may not be a very big church, but one of the things I'm most proud of in our church is that we're a very diverse church, age, education level, race, and so forth. And we must press forward with that. 
Because the, what the word of God is saying is you're fooling yourself. There was an old rock song. You're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. When you can't really be brothers and sisters, when you really can't live in the same homes and work together and, and love each other and worship together and pray together and disciple one another based on things like color or age, are most of your friends your same age? Are they the same educational level as you? Do you really know how to build relationships with people that are very, very different than you culturally? That's what I think this point is saying. That we have to be different than the world. If you, if you go to almost, there's a few exceptions to this, but you go to almost any place where there's forced racial integration, go to Wright State campus, very few blacks hang out with whites at Wright State campus, and very few whites hang out with blacks at Wright State campus. They're all there by government decree and laws, but that doesn't change man's heart. Christ has to change our heart. Um, so a couple verses along that line that you should, uh, you know, I'm not putting a lot of verses in this part of it. You're going to get a lot of scripture as we go on week to week. But 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, Peter says this, you also, he's speaking to the church as living stones. You know, temples are built out of stones. It's a metaphor are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. There's that priesthood idea again. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. Are we a race? Are we? He, this letter was written after what's called the dispersion to churches that were full, full of Gentiles from around 16 different nations the Romans had conquered, and they were full of Jews that had spread out. And he's telling them, you are one race. How does that work? It works like this. There's two races in the world. Those who are born of God because they can hear the voice of Jesus Christ and have chosen to, to deny themselves, lay down their life, and be reborn through him. And those who don't and can't. And honestly, all the other divisions of mankind come out of that. All true followers of Jesus Christ are born of one race and of one father. That's what Jesus makes clear in John 8. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Do you behave like a king? Do you clean your room like a king? <laughs> Uh, you're a people for God's own possession. Who do you think, if day to day, who do you really, do you really, really live your life out of a deep conviction that I'm not my own and I have no rights? That I belong to him and I'm his bondservant and I, I don't have any rights anymore. America's all about your rights. Well, Christianity is all about you don't have any rights left. <laughs> you're a servant of the king so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light he's quoting that from Exodus 19 5 and 6 now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant 
you shall be, which is the mark of true conversion, by the way. We have this whole thing that we're so afraid of having anything to do with works that we don't want to, to uh, require character or integrity or holiness out of, out of converts. Yes, you are saved by the grace of God. You are saved by faith. You trade your life for his. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But if you are truly living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and delivered himself up for you, you will walk filled with the Spirit with your mind on the things above, carrying out the desires of the Spirit and not doing the deeds of the flesh. That is so important. Well, I got about seven minutes left, so number 12. Let's... Hopefully you understand, Jesus said in John 14, 15 and John 14, 21, that he, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Love is, you know, like loving God and being set free is not some nebulous thing where you just do your own thing all the time and whatever you think God is saying to you. Someone who really loves God keeps his commandments. And that comes with a promise in verse 21. Jesus repeats it twice in verse 15 and verse 21. In 21, he adds a promise that if you love me and you keep my commandments, then my Father and I will come to you and disclose ourselves to you and abide with you. You want the manifest presence of God? Well, yes, I'm not preaching works here. I'm preaching by grace, enter into being his workmanship and live following him. Uh, Number 12, clarification or caution. This is important. The people of God that is the church, uh, the city of God, or whatever you want to call us, the temple of God, the people of God are a primary agent of the kingdom, as we'll see in chapter 8 again, but we are not exactly or completely synonymous with the kingdom of God in at least two important respects. This is always important to keep in mind uh, because as you begin to see the, the, what the Bible is really talking about in terms of the kingdom of God, it turns the church from running from the battle toward facing the battle. And over time, that begins to gather a spiritual momentum that's quite powerful and begins to liberate people and change lives and and build spiritual momentum and so forth, one thing you need to keep in mind is the citizens of the kingdom never fully experience the kingdom in this life. Think about that. We are, when you're born again, you become a child of God. You become an heir of the kingdom of God. You become a citizen of heaven. Your, Your primary citizenship is not a United States citizen. It's not a Kenyan citizen. Uh, Your primary citizenship is in heaven. However, we never fully experience the kingdom in in this life due to two factors. One is sin. If anybody is totally purified of their sins, I have known a young man that has told me that he's purified of his sins. But I've never, uh, I've had a few people nutty enough to claim that. I've never known anyone that it seems to fit very well. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, you know, we are never fully Christ-like, right? The other thing, though, is our finiteness. And what, people don't think much about that, uh, but, but you need to think about that. Do you realize that you would have marital squabbles? You would have uh, difficult times communicating with your kids, even if you and your wife didn't both have sin. Because with the fact that we're finite means we're, very, we're limited, and we will always have to work on communicating more accurately. We will always have to work at, uh, at being more uh, Christ-like. God, we're dealing with an infinite God, and we are very finite beings. One of the reasons uh, God gives the baptism in the Spirit, complete with, with a prayer language, is so that you can pray uh, in, the, in a language given by the Spirit that goes well beyond your finite understanding of the things of God. Sort of the ultimate slap in the face to our pride in some ways. That's why so many people kind of rebel at, at the, uh, the whole tongues. I want the Holy Spirit, all of it, unless it involves tongues. <laughs> and uh, you get that a lot. But uh, it's amazing how much we want God as long as he does it our way. I think we've been influenced too much by Burger King in this culture. But at Burger King, I can have the king and have it my way. Uh, <laughs> even there, you got to pay, though. Um, secondly, the kingdom and purposes of God are always larger than the people of God. Uh, this includes the fact that God wants to use the people of God to bless all of the earth. It also includes the fact that God does some things. He, God has chosen to primarily work through the agency of his church. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Right? But um, God does some things directly. And more importantly, in Genesis 12, when, when, when Abraham was called, he said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Adam's calling, all the callings of the great covenant head, regal heads were to bless the whole earth with the glory of God. Right? Some present-day examples uh, that I, how this works is, is simply this. Uh, yesterday, the Miami Valley Women's Center had its walkathon. Uh, I know that uh, many in our church participated and gave and so forth. But here is, here is a Christian ministry that blesses literally hundreds of people in amazing ways. And, and due to the church's division and brokenness and so forth, it's a what's called a parachurch ministry. And frankly, I hope that God will unite his church more. I, I pray for the unity of his church and so forth. But we're currently in a situation that many issues like that could never be done uh, by the agency of one church. They need to be done by the fact that many Christians understand, it, even if they don't fully grasp it intellectually, that we, because of our unity with Jesus Christ, all those who are actually in Christ, wherever they attend church, are really unified with one another, whether you realize it or not. And all, most Christians understand that at some level, some visceral level, some emotional, internal level, 
enough that they can participate in bigger purposes like that. And I would really encourage you when, when a, you know, when an organization like Miami Valley Women's Center, uh, Be Free Dayton, all these kind of organizations are doing the work of the kingdom in ways that no individual church in our, in our time period until God brings more restoration to his church, um, I'd encourage you to get behind that. A second example is Wiz Kids, which is both a parachurch thing but working through the local church, and, and we have a chapter of Wiz Kids down here. And we're blessing kids some of them uh, come to church on Sundays and will come to the Lord and, and show signs of coming to the Lord. Others will not. But the very fact that you're teaching them to read, that you're caring about them, that they're getting better attention sometimes during that one hour than they get the whole week at home, all of that is taking the manifest blessings of God to, to where we're supposed to take them. So hopefully that helps us with... Uh, the, the kingdom of God defying. Next week, we'll start in on chapter three, which will take several weeks uh, covering major biblical themes. I apologize that I was really off my game today and uh, very disjointed, but uh, hopefully enough of the uh, understanding came through. Amen.